A very warm welcome to one and all to another high-quality BJUI Knowledge Podcast. My name is Michael and the privilege of being Associate Editor of BJUI Knowledge for the past 10 years. I'm a U.S. Fellowship Endourologist and tonight I have the privilege of inviting one of my favorite authors to come in and talk about his module entitled Current Understanding and Management of Staghorn Calculus. Dr. Tan Yong Kang is also a U.S. Fellowship Endourologist and he trained under two very famous U.S. endourologists, first one being Professor Peggy Pearl from Texas, and secondly, Professor Gupta from Columbia. And he tonight will bring us through his module and talk about all things Staghorn, both past, present, and his future perspective about Staghorn calculus in our urological practice. Good evening, Yongka. Good to have you here. Good evening. Thanks for having me here. It's uh, truly a privilege to participate uh, and contribute to you know, the learning opportunities in uh, BJUI. Great stuff. I really, really enjoyed your module. And of course, the BJUI knowledge staff has made it into a very interactive online module. And I truly enjoy going through it. So let's just bring out some highlights of your module, which will be of interest to listeners today. Firstly, how would you, in your own words, define a Staghorn calculus? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a good way to start. I mean, definitions are very important. So I, I think that any kind of calcium or any kind of stone formation that involves both the renal pelvis and a number of the calyces of the kidney would define a Staghorn stone. The more calluses that are involved converts one from being a partial staghorn to a complete staghorn stone. Yes, absolutely right. In fact, I look at staghorn as the most complex and challenging of all urinary stones. I yes. remember in my fellowship years, I was told that I cannot finish or complete my fellowship without knowing how to deal with such a complex and challenging stone. Do you remember uh, in the past, the incidence of staghorn stone was was quite high. I remember in, in 20 years ago, we could see maybe Staghorn stones forming 10 to 15% of the incidence of all stones that we face. Mm. But today, it seems to be much less. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I, I remember when I first started my training, in fact, spending some time with you too uh, at the Singapore General Hospital. And, you know, the PCNLs that we were doing, the majority of cases were full staghorns or almost complete staghorn stones. But over the years, I've noticed that there's been a drop in cases, and that is in the local Singapore context here. But globally, I think we're also seeing the numbers drop from maybe 20-25% down to maybe even 5%. And, you know, that brings out a point about why is it that that's happening. And, you know, traditionally, we would say that staghorn stones tend to be uh, infective stones and very common among patients who had previous spinal cord injuries, and they were not managed properly. So I think one of the reasons is probably a better management of patients with urinary tract infections, especially in those with spinal cord injuries. So we're getting on top of the infective stones. On top of that, I think with the advent of CT scans becoming more and more common, we are picking up stones at an earlier stage of disease. Just like, you know, in the past, we were dealing with large renal masses, metastatic renal masses, and then now we're dealing with all this small renal masses and trying to figure out what to do with them. So I think these are contributing factors, both a better understanding and control of infective situations in the urinary system and uh, you know more advanced imaging modalities being used for multiple uh, reasons and incidental pickup of stones. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. In fact, uh, you're absolutely correct with regards to the factors that seem to reduce the incidence of staghorn stones. Just to add to what you've already said, I think the other uh, thing that's happening the last 20 years is we better understand the etiology of urinary stones. So in patients where we are able to ascertain the etiology of urinary stones, we have better preventive strategies for them to reform their stones and, of course, uh, increase the size of stone to stack on is much reduced because of better strategies. Totally agree, yeah. So next, let's go to the stone composition. That's one good part of your module where you talked about stone compositions. So tell us more about stone compositions in stackhorn stones. So, you know, traditionally, we're always taught that stackhorn stones are predominantly uh, related to struvite stones. And those will be basically magnesium phosphate, ammonium magnesium phosphate stones. They will be due to urospinic organisms like Proteus, Pseudomonas, Klebsiella, and so on and so forth. But I think the data coming out from different parts of the world is showing different kinds of stone compositions, partly because maybe there's a change in the management of urinary tract infections. But I think it's also the local gene pool and maybe local environmental considerations. For example, you know, places like you know, Saudi Arabia have shown almost a 50% incidence of calcium oxalate stones rather than uh, struvite stones in their staghorn stone populations. And similarly, in, in Japan, it's also a predominant calcium oxalate, calcium phosphate stone population with staghorn stones rather than the traditional uh, struvite stones that we normally read about. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And the flip side of the coin is that whenever I come across any patient that grows proteus in the urine culture, I always uh, scan the kidneys just to make sure there's no infected stones also mm. present uh, in the same patient. There's been a lot of talk about the natural history of staghorn stones and how it damages kidneys. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Thanks for raising that. Actually, we, we had this discussion between the two of us about how things have changed. You know, original data coming out from Blandy in 1973 said that over the 10, 15 years, all these staghorn stones would progress towards kidney failure and nephrectomies. But I think the newer data seems to indicate that it may not be as bad as it sounds. There is definitely a progression towards declining renal function, but potentially it doesn't go all the way towards a nephrectomy. And I think we were discussing that, you know, it may be related to the different kinds of stone composition. The original groups of cases, as we discussed, were predominantly uh, infective struvite stones. So the inflammatory process may have been damaging the kidneys, uh, along with the actual staghorn stones. Whilst maybe with calcium oxalate, calcium phosphate stones, they may have a slightly more benign cause of natural history. Though, I mean, the fact of the matter is you are obstructing urinary systems, you yes. are increasing back pressure in the kidney, so there is bound to be some degree of uh, renal dysfunction uh, as time progresses. Definitely the take-home message uh, for listeners would be a staghorn stone has damaging impact on the kidney function in the long run, be it mm. infective stones, through obstruction, through bleeding and other sorts. But definitely yes. it will cause progressive damage and therefore it is something that we need to handle well uh, when a patient presents with staghorn stones. Uh, let's move on to how we can manage staghorn stones as urologists. Let's start off by talking about what is the general aim of treatment in staghorn stones. Yeah, great question. I think the main aim that we're aiming for is as much as possible a complete removal of the stone burden while you know, at the same time minimizing injury to the kidney, causing renal dysfunction and bleeding issues. Yeah. I think that's an excellent uh, reason, uh, aim for treatment. 
So in your module, you start off with a very interesting uh, treatment module, which is the open surgery for Saghorn stones. Uh, you just want to make some historical comments in its present context with regards yes. to open surgery in the treatment of Saghorn stones. You know, we talk about open surgery uh, as if it's something that was in the past, but potentially in certain countries, due to a lack of resources, open surgery is still a very viable option. I mean, I've been to some of our developing neighbours and I've seen really wonderful, amazing open surgery being done very fast, sometimes faster than most of our PCNLs. But I, I guess the two things that would be, you know, in regards to open surgery for kidney stones would be open anatrophic pyelolithotomy. Where it's similar to in the past when we were doing open partial uh, nephrectomies and all that, where basically you chill down the kidney, you open the kidney along Bordel's line, get to the stones, clear it out, and then close up everything after that. I mean, done well in the, by a good surgeon in a good center, you know, the blood loss is manageable, where you may not necessarily need a transfusion. And then the other option, of course, open pyelolithotomy, where essentially we are going in and opening up the renal pelvis through the renal pelvis itself to extract the stone may not require so much vascular control in that setting. It's a great option and, you know, we've also done it laparoscopically uh, in terms of controlling to try and minimize the damage uh, compared to open methods of uh, pilotomy and, and anatrophic pilotomies. Yes, I mean, I, I remember there's uh, in, in about 30 years ago when I started doing urology, uh, I had the privilege of doing uh, quite a few renal splits and mm -hmm. under proper mentorship from senior uh, surgeons uh, is actually a very delightful procedure. And one of the things we do uh, after we do a renal split is to uh, put the stone together on the table and compare it with the x-ray to make sure that we have taken out every part uh, of the staghorn stone. And of course, we still do a plain x-ray at the end of the renal split just to ensure that we have not missed anything, any stone or any stone fragment uh, in the kidney. Mm, mm. The other interesting thing to bring up about open surgery was uh, when PCNL was being developed in the US uh, in the mid-1990s and late 1990s, where there was a lot of complications and a lot of need for multiple procedures, PCNL and, and shockwave combination. Uh, there were several, several senior urologists in the US who advocate a one-stop uh, stone removal, that is a renal split rather than a multiple stage procedure. But of course, that's all in the past. That's all because the development of these techniques and technology for PCNL uh, was not so well developed as we had today. Mm. Let's talk about another module that you, you mentioned, uh, which is also of historical importance and also of current and future importance as well. And that is the treatment option of ESWL or extracorporeal shockwave lithotripsy in the management of staghorn stones. What are your thoughts, Yonka? Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, as we were discussing also previously, you know, shockwave is a really interesting modality. And I think when it first came out in the 70s, everyone was trying to push the boundaries in terms of how far you could, you could bring ESWL to manage stones. I think that's but what came out of the whole uh, process of uh, investigation and learning is that it's probably not the best option, especially the bigger the stone burden. Um, you know, most of the results show somewhere around a 20% success rate, uh, maybe up to 30 or 40% with multiple treatment uh, regimes for ESWL. And, you know, this is uh, associated with also infections and bleeding and potentially renal trauma. So I, I, I don't think really shockwave now is a great option for the treatment of staghorn stones. 
Though, you know, there are newer technologies like burst wave, little tripsy that are coming online in the next few years. So it will be interesting to see whether this have a role to play in, uh, in Staghorn stones. Yes, definitely. I mean, I remembered uh, coming across patients uh, 25 years ago who had received uh, somewhere between 10 to 8 sessions of ESWL trying to clear a Staghorn stone. And we can we recognize retrospectively based on all our studies that it's a futile attempt to try to achieve stone-free rates using ESWL monotherapy. Mm, but sometimes, but currently at this point in time, I guess uh, for, for Saghorn stones, there's no place for ESWL. But in the past, I remember it was used in conjunction with other modalities like PCNL. So mm, you get yeah. this uh, sandwich uh, technique, what they call sandwich technique in the 25 years ago, where you do ESWL followed by PCNL and then end up with an ESWL to try to get rid of a stone. But these multiple stage repeat procedures has tremendous uh, mobility yes. uh, both to the patient and as well as to the kidneys so we've moved away from that and therefore to the listeners uh, ESWL monotherapy is not recommended uh, for patients with staghorn stones today let's talk about the next treatment modality which is your flexible urethroscopy uh, retrograde uh, mm. what are your thoughts Yonka? Yeah, so, you know, when I first started developing this module, we were, you know, at, you know really still in the initial stages. Well, yes. not really initial, but, you know, we've been doing uh, flexible utroscopies for 10 plus years, 15 mm -hmm. years and all that. Um, but we were still relatively limited in terms of technology. Uh, we were still using low power homeum lasers to break up stones. And, you know, they were really not very efficient for the management of large stone stones. I mean, you could laser it, but you end up with a lot of dust and fragments and the success rates were relatively poor. But, you know, things progress, you know, in the last five, ten years, we've, we've realized that, you know, even with those, you know, relatively low power homing lasers and, and, and stuff, we were still managing to treat uh, two, maybe even up to 2.5 centimeter stones with a relatively good, you know, success rate of around 70 to 80%, which is, is not too bad. But now with the newer technologies, studio fiber lasers and all that coming on board, you know, we are really trying, starting to push the boundaries in terms of uh, what we can achieve with flexible utroscopies. Yes, definitely. I mean, one of the things that I, I see is the improvement in terms of the laser, which is the introduction of tulum uh, being used more and more uh, worldwide. And of course, other accessories like access sheath that en ensures that the drainage of the collecting system is optimal during our long procedure. And that also, of course, allows us to run in more fluid to bring down the temperature when we're yes. using uh, laser fiber. All that will prolong our ability to treat uh, bigger stones uh, from below. Yeah. I think that maybe in the, in, in the future, if, if flexible urethroscopy will again be something that can be used for bigger and bigger stones. But I'm not sure uh, when you reach the size of a staghorn stone, especially one that's uh, partial to near complete, uh, that uh, flexible utroscopy alone will be sufficient to achieve uh, good results in uh, adequate operating time. And in some cases, they will match it with uh, PCNL simultaneously to try to uh, increase efficiency, decrease operating time and increase uh, stone-free rates. Yeah, I think it's a, it'll be an interesting space to watch. I mean, recently I've been trying uh, flexible, steerable access sheaths with suction built in. 
you know, we, we are getting there, but I, yeah, as I agree, I don't think we'll be at a full Staghorn Stone or heavy stone burden car load yet. Yeah. So let's talk about what is recommended for the management, surgical management of Staghorn Stone, that is uh, percutaneous stone removal. What are your thoughts on this very exciting treatment module? I think, Mike, you and me are big uh, proponents of uh, PCNL. But even within this space, it's changed so much. Uh, you know, we start off with our standard 30 French PCNL, potentially multi-puncture for big staghorn stones uh, with many calluses. And now we've, we're seeing uh, smaller scopes down to uh, micro PCNL, though probably not the best option for staghorn stone. Uh, we're seeing uh, different positionings. We all started with uh, fluoroscopic guided excess, uh, prone position, and then, uh, you know, now we're seeing uh, supine position, PCNLs, ultrasound, and some of them fully ultrasound guided, both puncture and dilatation. We've gone from metal dilators to balloon dilators. And then we've gone on to doing things like uh, endoscopic combined intravenous surgeries and all that. So it's, it's an amazing space that, and how things have progressed in the last 10 to 15 years. Yes, you're right. Absolutely right. So let's just uh, uh, pick on what you just mentioned. So let's talk about the prone position. Mm. Are there any surgical tips you want to highlight to our listeners with regards to PCNL in a prone position for staghorn stones? Yeah, so I, I think a prone position is a really good position for staghorn stones. It gives you the most access to the kidney. Uh, oftentimes, we use it in combination with upper pole puncture. And sometimes we can try and split the table a little bit to increase the space between the, the ribs and the upper pole so that we have a better access to the upper pole. So for a staghorn stone, a prone position is a really uh, good position to access the kidney. It allows you for multi-punctures with multiple calices and all that. And combined with a flexible nephroscopy, it allows you very good access to many calluses. I think in general, the data for staghorn stone is at least a 70% or more uh, success rate for complete stone clearance, uh, depending on uh, the level of experience that the surgeon has. Yeah, I, I really remembered in my uh, US fellowship days, uh, we always perform what we call a medial super 12 upper pole renal access because the, that access gives us the best uh, access to the whole collecting system from above and using a combination of both rigid and flexible nephroscope we're able to uh, perform a usual stone-free race, no matter how complex the stone is. And only on occasions do we need uh, secondary access uh, to clear up uh, those hard-to-reach hard stones in certain calluses. Mm, yes. The other surgical tip that I remember that was emphasized to me uh, was that when performing PCNL uh, for such staghorn, so such big complex staghorn stones, it's very important to come back two days later uh, to do a secondary PCNL using a flexible nephroscope from the upper pole just to ensure uh, that we clean up the calluses to the best of our ability. Yes, This is important because in staghorn stones, in general, we find a lot of uh, scarring in, in the collecting system. And then, especially in the low pole where it may be dilated and scarred, the emptying capacity of the low pole may not be so uh, optimal. And therefore, if we use ESWL post-PCNL, the chances yeah. of stone-free rate is much poorer compared with if we have chosen the strategy of a secondary PCNL, usually performed 48 hours after the primary PCNL to ensure stone-free rates. So those are things that I learned 
Uh, and you're right, you, you know, the number of excess uh, entering the kidney is probably best in a prone position. And the other reason is because the distance between the skin and the calyces is the shortest in the prone position and is the longest in the supine position. So instrumentation, uh, even for very obese uh, Midwest uh, patients, which I have a lot in Indianapolis, uh, we do not need to have an extra long excess sheath uh, in most of these patients. So those are some of the points I've learned uh, in performing uh, prone PCNL uh, for second stones. So let's move on to supine position. Tell us some of the thoughts and strategies for supine PCNL dealing with staghorn stones. Maybe I'll share a bit of history. The first one I did was because we couldn't turn the patient prone, airway issues. I guess that points to the fact that uh, in the supine position, it's actually easier for the anesthetist. Direct access to the airway, direct access to the chest, if there's any problems, there's less potential risk of uh, brachial plexus injuries and uh, any kind of uh, eye problems because the patient's in a supine position. The excess points are usually uh, mid-pole or lower-pole excess because upper pole is oftentimes difficult to access and the range of motion for, or range of the scope is uh, limited in the upper-pole puncture. So oftentimes it's a mid- or, or lower-pole puncture. The good thing about it is that because it is in a dependent position, it is relatively low pressure. The system, in fact, oftentimes you have to run pretty high flows to maintain the collecting system to, to yeah. stand just a little bit. And the good thing about the fact that it is in a dependent position is that the fragments tend to flow out. Whereas uh, sometimes in a prone, you have this issue with uh, fragments circulating all around the system and you just can't, can't get them out and it drives you crazy. So there are some benefits to the supine position. I guess the other benefit of the supine position is easy to convert it into an endoscopic combined intravenous surgery because for uh, the second surgeon to come in from below up the ureter with a flexible ureteroscope, it's not uh, prone and it's, in fact it's supine, so excess and all that is not so much of a problem to do a combination uh, treatment. So in combination, uh, I think uh, ECRS is, is a great treatment option. Uh, it's just that it requires a lot more equipment in the operating theater and two experienced surgeons who, who can work well together. Definitely. I mean, e ECIS is something that has been very, very popular, especially from Europe. And mm. uh, using a combination of uh, two approaches, one percutaneous and one retrograde, would mean that you're able to cut down operating time and you're still able to have carry out a good conversation with your colleague throughout the <laughs> procedure and make good friends as well. So okay. definitely uh, that, that combination is very popular and uh, something that is very appropriate for patients with stack on stone. So there are pros and cons, prone versus supine. And I think it all boils down to what your training is and what's your available resources. And of course, if you are a fellowship trained uh, endurologist who's training you, techniques will be familiar uh, to certain uh, mentors and less familiar to others. But nonetheless, the decision of how to approach and the position of the patient will very much depend on the surgeon's uh, preference at the end of the day, as long as we achieve the end point, which is we remove the stone with very minimal complications. Now, do you remember there was a, there was a couple of guidelines that was way back in 1994, EUA talked about sandwich procedure, PCNL, ESWL, PCNL. And now it's, of course, a move towards a purely PCNL monotherapy. And, and this is something that's, I think, driven by many factors, one of which is technology, more experience. What other factors do you think are important for this change in philosophy of approach? 
enough shockwaves to the kidney and you see a lot of scarring in the collagen system. Stones that are basically attached to the mucosa cannot be removed unless you literally tell the mucosa to, to remove it. Yes. So I think people see all this and they're not so keen on, on the shockwave component, especially when patients are going for multiple shockwaves. I think in general, because of what we have in terms of technology, as you say, once again, we are really supported by technology. Started off with uh, pneumatic detoplas for uh, PCNLs, uh, which were not so efficient. We went on to shockwave lithotripsies, uh, systems that are really pretty amazing nowadays and really minimize the damage to mucosa. You can break down stones so rapidly now. And then with the mini PCNL sets, potentially with high power lasers, we are breaking down stones pretty rapidly. You know, we reached a point where we don't really need the shockwave anymore in terms of, you know, stack on stones because we have such good modalities in, yes. uh, in uh, both PCNL and uh, retrograde intravenous surgery options. Definitely. Just just to uh, clarify, I think uh, to the listeners that when we talk about Sackhorn stones, we are usually talking about those standard uh, PCNL uh, diameters rather than mini PCNL. But definitely mini PCNLs are really, really helpful in smaller stones and very efficient as well. So let's uh, move on to your last topic that you covered in your module, which I really, really like, enjoyed reading many times. Talk about the strategies for dissolving Stackhorn stones. Yeah, so I mean, in the past, we've used things like uh, Subi solution, uh, but then there was mainly uh, superseded by renesidin. Uh, but really, renesidin is used as an adjuvant to post PCNL or post, uh, actually, there were more post nephrolithotomies. And uh, the idea was that any remnants, struvite stones, you would try and dissolve them with uh, renesidin. The problems was there were some issues with deaths related to its use. And I think this were mainly related to the fact that the systems were a PCN placed in the kidney and the pressures may have been a bit too high, leading to backflow and neurosepsis. But because of what we are able to achieve now from PCNLs and from retrograde intravenous surgeries, I think we've reached a point where a lot of these uh, irrigation solutions are now, they are more like in the history books. Because oftentimes, uh, running a renicidin irrigation, apart from the risk of sepsis, took weeks. You had to run it for two or three weeks to try and get complete stone-free state in, in the patients. Yeah, I remember those maybe 20 years ago. Uh, sometimes you come across a purely uric acid partial mm. stack on stone with no significant obstruction and no significant uh, recurrent infection. Sometimes we use sodium bicarb. Uh, right. to increase the pH and slowly dissolve the stone, but it takes about six to nine months uh, to have significant reduction. So those are rare cases, but sometimes uh, they are presented in front of you and that's just one of the strategies. Great. It's, yes. it's been, you know, so we come to the end of your, your wonderful module. Are there some summary uh, take-home points that you want to emphasize uh, to your listeners today? Yeah, I think just a few things. You know, stack stones, though uncommon, are still important to be treated before they lead to long-term and significant renal dysfunction. Preferably, they be done in locations with a high-volume center in terms of management of these kind of conditions uh, so that the patients can have optimal outcomes. And uh, I think PCNL is really the mainstay of treatment for uh, stagnant stones. Yes, thank you very, very much. So it remains for me to thank you once again uh, for taking time out from your busy schedule to be present this podcast and for writing the 
excellent module, which is uh, one of my favorites in the endourological uh, section. And also to you listeners, please remember to sign up and access BJUI knowledge and learn more about urology in 30 minutes online interactive modules. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Mike.